welcome to the Station Tapes on 21 Soul. I'm your host, Lewis Marks, on a hot, steamy day. I'm broadcasting from the train station just outside the great city of Philadelphia. And today I have the great opportunity to speak with Michael Eaton, saxophonist, together with Sean Sonderegger and James Brandon Lewis. have a new project called Tenor Triage, due out on September 13th. And I might add, there's some heavy hitters on there. Uh, Brad Jones on bass and G. Calvin Weston on drums. Michael, welcome. How are you? Uh, glad to be with you, Lewis, and I'm doing great. Good, good. I often start with the community that uh, that someone grew up in, but I want to push that, you know, the music community that, that raised you, so to speak, but I want to push that off for a second. Uh, the first okay. question that comes to mind for me today uh, is the role of the saxophone in jazz. And you write in your, in your bio, uh, you know, some, some shows that you've done uh, focusing on uh, Coltrane. And I, I want to mm-hmm. hear from you, what, what does the saxophone mean in jazz? As broad a question as that is. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question, and in some ways, it's the preeminent solo instrument or soloist instrument in jazz. Um, you know, I think Louis Armstrong or King Oliver might have been the first great jazz stylist, essentially. But very quickly, I think because of the flexibility and uh, potential of Adolf Sax's design uh, for the saxophone, it, it became identified as a as a horn for jazz and, and blues and popular music. Um, I actually have somewhat of a background in classical saxophone a little bit, um, and there was a long slow climb for the saxophone to be accepted in Western classical music because of its associations with uh, like non-classical musics, uh, which is kind of an interesting side story digression. But um, I think in, in jazz history, you know, obviously getting, there are, there are many great seminal jazz saxophonists. Um, I mean, immediately, uh, well, I want to say also stylists who have, redefined the music or innovators. You know, you have Lester Young and Coleman Hawkins and Charlie Parker and John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman. I mean, those not, those names come to mind. Albert Eiler, you know, uh, folks mm. who contributed either some kind of harmonic language or uh, uh, sonic approach that um, echoed throughout the 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 tree, the, the large family tree, and, and reordered or changed the way that people thought about the music, and especially in terms of those innovators that I mentioned. And so uh, for me, um, I think the saxophone just has such an enormous potential. A lot of it, you know, there's, there's been a lot of exploration of what it can do. Um, so with tenor triage, uh, it's, I think the idea is we have um, kind of our voices and our experiences, and we, we all have kind of a background in free jazz and that part of the, the, the jazz stylistic family tree. And then, and you know, particularly Sean and James Brandon Lewis have played um, groove music and are into a variety of musics outside the jazz sphere. And you, you know, I've got I've got my background a lot of modern jazz, straight ahead jazz as well, as do they. So you know, I think we're trying to bring together a lot of parts of that spectrum with our own voices, and it's kind of got a I would call it a different yet the same energy or or, or chemistry about it. Um, but the saxophone and jazz, I mean, I think. Um, you know, there have been so many powerful tenor players, uh, probably all of us identify with that kind of soloistic approach. Uh, but we can also be group players as well. So I think the saxophone 
the saxophone in some ways became almost the preeminent um, jazz instrument and remains so to this day. And I think we're trying to, you know, pay homage and take our place within that, I hope. Yeah, for me, I, I mean, and maybe help me here. Uh, sure. It, it feels like there's an emotional range, if, that, mm-hmm. if that's even a term, to the saxophone that that other instruments don't have. Yeah, it might pro- might be because it partly has such a broad sonic palette that it can you know it can it can encompass so many different moods and and timbres. Um, you know, it can be strong, fragile, uh, sensitive, uh, explosive. It, it runs a gamut of, of emotions, and and we're, we you know we know the saxophone. We have so many saxophone players who embody those those feelings. I mean, just for example, you know John Coltrane. If we think about the the spirituality or religiosity, if you want to put it that way, and his yeah. intensity versus Sonny Rollins's playfulness and humor. I mean, right there, there's kind of a, a pole or polarities at work um and and i think this kind of goes throughout the saxophone's history interesting and you mentioned coltrane so we are we are on the eve of i think some unreleased material coming out from coltrane is that right that's right and i you know i i um i only know just a little bit about that that record but i know i've heard somehow i heard the the track village blues from that session i heard it somewhere on the internet and it's it's good i mean any coltrane is good Coltrane. So mm-hmm. I'm excited about that. And I'd like to hear, um, I think they actually do a version of Naima too, which um, if I'm not mistaken, it's around 1964, 63, that that, that, that was, that that is from. So I'd love to hear uh, that, that tune played on a studio, in a studio context, you know, just to see what he was doing at that time. But that's very exciting. So you guys came together initially around John Coltrane's work, the, the band itself or? That's that's exactly right. Yeah, I I did a, a tribute to Coltrane's Ascension. I wanted to play Ascension with a great group of improvisers. I have a friend, a good friend, Adam Minkoff, who's a bassist and multi instrumentalist, and he's uh, he's currently touring with Dweezil Zappa, so he's also way into the Zappa thing. But he and I collaborate on many different styles and projects, and we thought, well, let's do something Coltrane related for the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of Ascension. And so we did a we did a uh, a concert at Shapeshifter Lab, and that brought together in the saxophone section of Sean Sonreger and James Brandon Lewis. And I was like, you know, these these guys really have an interesting chemistry. When when the three of us play, it has a certain certain thing happening. And um, so I called them the next year in 2016 for my uh, record on Destiny Records called Biological, and we did a track together as three tenors, and it was kind of in a late Coltrane mode. And then um, we did a concert the next year after that in 2017 at Rockwood Music Hall. And at that time, I was kind of conceiving of it as a more like harmonic uh, focused band. And I, I, would, I was going to try to get alumni of Ornette Coleman, so I got uh, the late, uh, the late great Burn Nix on guitar, and then Calvin Weston on drums, and I, and I ended up getting an organ player, my friend Brad Whiteley, and uh, we we had a very successful concert, and I thought this is something I want to pursue, and then Burn passed away, so it got down to a pianist quintet, and I thought I think you know, this is the sound of the band. I want to keep this as like a open chordless thing that can go in a lot of directions, and so that is where tenor triage came from. But it, I think that that late Coltrane spirit is still very much present. Mm-hmm. Sure. Is it, it I, and, and pardon my ignorance, um, sure. has this been done? Three tenors up front? That, 
Um, there have been there. I think there's a couple of associations I have. There's um, David Liebman's band, the Saxophone Summit, and he had like an all-star band with Joe Lovano and Michael Brecker. And um, mm-hmm. I recorded with Liebman on my first album. And so I'd had kind of that as a model. And then there's also um, a record, I think it's on Prestige. It's called Very Saxy from 1960. And it's four tenors with Eddie Lockjaw Davis and Coleman Hawkins and Arnett Cobb and Buddy Tate. And they've got Shirley Scott on organ and they're swinging so hard. And um, that those were kind of models for me or also even an opera, you know, with the three tenors. I think... There's uh-huh. kind of um, there's like a you know that you have that triad or triangle. You have the three voices, and um, I think there's something there's something to that. We have kind of a masculine energy going on. It's a little bit, you know, it's cooperative, but it's also competitive. It's it's got that kind of rough housing quality. So that's that's what I want to do is is take that format and then be um, modern with it, so to speak. You know, just make it more like more contemporary grooves and, and a free thing within that. But that's those are my reference points. There there might be some other three tenors, but I'm I'm not really sure off off the top of my head. Are, are you guys similar players, or or are there? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think there's enough. It's got enough. We've got enough similarity between us to be kind of unified, but then also different enough to be interesting and not you know totally derivative or totally copying each other. You know, I think we. We have like you, you know Coltrane is a reference point and a lot of other tenor players, but um, we have enough of individual differences that it, it's um, you know we can each take a solo and I hopefully I mean my goal is that it's saying something different and interesting with each one. Hmm. Hmm. Um, Brad Jones, how does yeah. he, he is such? I was looking through his discography the other day and it's it's really stunning. I mean he he did a record with us. Uh, yeah. Maybe ten or so years ago, uh, mm-hmm. I remember the conversation talking to him about sales. Uh, and I said, you know, it's going to be a challenging thing. And he's like, oh, I, I don't I don't think I'm going to sell any records. Uh, <laughs> I just, just want to get the thing out there, you know. I was like, okay, all right. I, you know, I want to meet everybody's expectations, you know. Um, yeah. But uh, I think he's being honest, very honest there, yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it was it was an it was an unusual project, and I, I get why he said that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was yeah. interested to see how much he plays uh, mm-hmm. on, the, on the rock side, sort of like okay. yeah. call it alternative Americana rock, uh, Chuck okay. Prophet and others, right? Um, yeah, I, I think there's. I mean, when I hear him play, there's the the groove aspect is very strong, and 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 soul yeah. is in there. Yeah. That's what I was. That's what I was getting at. Do you notice it when he when he's playing with you? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, well, I just wanted to mention. There's a. I think there's a, a track on the album where he plays. Uh, yeah, it's one of Sean's tunes, um, and he plays like a, a little bit of a solo up front, and that might have been the first um, track that we we recorded that day. And I just remember hearing him solo and going, "Oh, okay." You know, like um, the 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 groove, the thump, the, the power, the blues element was really strong. And, and it, it um, kind of like set a tone for the session. I think like it, it, you know, when you have that kind of um, solidity and security in the bass, uh, um, it, it lays the carpet out for everybody else. It sets the tone. And I, uh, it was, it was a relief just to have, you know, I hadn't played with him and I, I, I knew it was going to be great, but um, I think what what you're meaning, what you're bringing up about like the, the background in those kinds of musics and the, and being active in those domains really 
translates to the tenor triage record and it, and it helps you know it just grounds everything he's mm-hmm. very you know very secure like he's just a total professional and he's right there from the first note yeah that's that's the impression i always get of his work um how yeah. how does the process work so are these all uh, who, who's writing and then how does that process happen um is everything laid out before you go in well uh, yeah, we we had written everything. It's it's um everything we played on the on the album is divided between uh, the, the the writing is divided between me and Sean and James. So we all brought in music. Um, Sean brought in some music that that I think was he had played in other contexts. You know, it's sort of like you see how things take shape in a new band and what those people are going to say with it. Um, I brought in I think um, I think I, br- I brought in a couple tunes. No, I brought in yeah. Uh, three tunes actually blues for burn and, and um, then a free bop tune uh, and then a kind of more modern jazz tune. And then James brought in a, like a, like a kind of rubato free jazz piece. And um, I thought we, I think the balance of tunes works really well and, and everybody's voices, you can kind of tell them apart. Um, I think it, you know, I just told people, Hey, we're going to do a record date, bring in some tunes. What kind of stuff do you want to see on the album? How do you want to be represented? And then they, you know, brought, brought their stuff and we kind of selected what would, what would record well, you know, like what we could get done. Cause it was really like a six hour session and we just pounded it out. I mean, it, it just oh, went yeah. like boom, boom, boom. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was, it was really cool. Just to, just to, you know, I think somebody had to have, if somebody had a gig or something or there was some stuff going on, it was like, we have six hours, so we got to do this. But, you know, we had constructed a, a list beforehand and we had rehearsed some of the tunes. So we knew what we were going to do, but um, I just wanted to have a balance of material from each individual tenor player and, and let the record take shape from there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now uh, tell me about performing together. What, uh, what's going to be happening? Where can people, uh, where can people find you? Well, we're, we're going to probably, the next thing I'm going to do is have a CD release and I'm, I'm in the process of, putting that together. Um, Sean Sondreger just moved back to LA where he's from. Mm. So we're going to have to kind of figure out logistically how this is going to work. But I'm, I'm was hoping to do um, a New York venue. Uh, you know, like I, I would love to play at national sawdust or maybe the South theater. I'm still working on putting together a gig for the band for, for the CD release. So People can check my website at um, michaeatonmusic.com and I'll be listing all the, all the dates there. Um, it's kind of a thing where we, we sometimes have to get different rhythm section personnel depending on who's available. Mm-hmm. But I try to keep the three tenors together as much as possible. And well, every time we play, we've, we've had the, the three main guys and then we've had, you know, we've had to substitute different people, but we should be playing in, in the next few months before the end of 2019. Hopefully that's, that's the goal. Good, good. Um, so let me, uh, let me double back as, as previously mentioned, yeah. uh, where did you grow? Where did you grow up? Where'd you come up? I'm from originally from the Kansas City, Missouri area. I grew up in a town called Liberty, which is a suburb, um, and I I lived there. You know, I, I went to school there, went to high school, in in the Kansas City area. And in high school, I got exposed to jazz and improvisation, and the jazz culture, and everything. And then I went to school in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, at the at Indiana University, at their School of Music, the Jacobs School of Music, and I was there from. 1999 to 2007, I, I stayed in town a little while longer, 
and then I moved to New York in 2008. Um, but I'm a I'm a Kansas City boy at heart, I guess. You know, I I go back there twice a year, and I I hear people, and I kind of go, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm you know the Kansas City roots are coming out. I think as I get closer to 40. That's interesting. Uh, Logan Richardson's from Kansas City, is he not? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. very much so. I, I knew him a little bit growing up and we played some, we played just a handful of gigs or jam sessions together. He was a year older than me and he was, he was like, you know, the, the, the hot young jazz player of the time. And I always admired him and look up, looked up to him. And I remember, um, you know, back in, back in the day when he was, he was really, really into for a minute, Charlie Parker, but then Kenny Garrett was his man at that point. And, um, so that, that was a long time ago. I'm sure if he, if he heard that now, he, he might, he might say no, no, but <laughs> back in the time, that was what he was doing, but he was, he's still playing. He still comes to Kansas city. I still see gigs uh, and I, people were talking about his record. In fact, they're talking about um, the last one was, was the blue, the, the blues album that blues sorry, people. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Blues people. That's what I was thinking. Um, that, that had quite a big buzz in KC. I saw a lot of people like talking about it on Facebook and the internet. And I was, you know, I thought it was a great concept for, um, a record and i thought it was also kind of a departure for him stylistically it seemed to me like he was functioning almost more as a singer incidentally than like you know the standard like jazz soloist which was interesting but he's a very rock singer yeah 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 i thought he just didn't take a lot of solos it was like not the standard jazz record in a good way like i thought he was trying to break fresh ground and and uh, he's always been somebody i've deeply respected he's a great 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 musician there's a there's an interesting thing. I'm always fascinated. I mean, I I grew up in the rock world, you know, uh, yeah, suburban white kid in the '60s, '70s, yeah, totally. you know, and uh, it was it was as I got into this role here at Rope It Open, I started to notice the differences uh, in uh, jazz. Like, there's two to me. There's two veins that come up. One is mm-hmm. you know New Orleans, uh, maybe up to Chicago or straight to New York, and then there's that. Mm-hmm you know, Houston, Dallas, Kansas City, Omaha kind of vibe and it and it's it seems so much more blue interesting and and, and roots oriented. Seems a lot more that dusty, could be, dusty, you know. Yeah, that that's you, you could be on to something there and um because, you know, I'm gonna loop back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation about the saxophone and, and the tenor saxophone. And if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, Coleman Hawkins is from St. Joseph, Missouri, he kind of disavowed it. He he moved to Chicago, I think, in his teens. But he's from he's from like ninety miles, oh no, forty miles north of me or something. Um, and then I think Ben Webster was from either I think he's from Nebraska or something. Uh-huh. And then like Don Bias, he's one of the greatest tenor players, you know, of like all time. But Don Bias in, in the swing era, you know, he was from Oklahoma, I think. I think I'm getting this history correctly correct. And then um, you know, Lester Young at whatever, yeah. you know, in the thirties came up to be in Kansas city with Basie. And so like, you have these amazing archetypal tenor players who are just all in the area. It's something in this, something in the air. And, and like when I walk around and, and um, I mean, I had a big, big Charlie Parker phase at one point in my development, as I think most people in jazz probably do. Uh, 
and you know, I just, I don't know. So, sometimes it's it's cool to be be in the place where you're like, oh, he was walking around here. He was, you know, he was yeah. breathing the same air. Not really. <laughs> he was he was um, part of this milieu, and that this somebody these these people that had such profound voices were like literally ten miles away at, at some point. It was like it's just an interesting thought to me. But um, yeah, it's it has a rich culture and. Um, I think uh, you know Logan, for for that matter, is an exponent of that too. But but I think yeah, there's there's a soulfulness from from that area, or, or maybe like you said, a rootsiness that um, yeah. comes out in playing. Yeah, yeah. it seems I like could, I could dig that. Seems like they never lost the uh, the 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 link part. The, the link wasn't broken from the from the from the life that was lived. If if that makes any sense. It yeah. Did. Totally. The balance of polish and the and the and the experience piece when you're playing, you know. Um, and I don't yeah. mean experience. I mean life experience and history, yeah. uh, rather than you know po polishing it up perfectly to be to you know to to bring jazz to that same level as a uh, as classical music, if you will, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah so. I also think people swing. My opinion, and this could be. I could be full of it, but like, I think people still like kind of swing hard in the Midwest. That's a, that's a value that they have. I mean, I'm speaking very, very broadly, uh -huh. but like, I think when I go back and I hear people swing um, in jazz or whatever, I just, I hear a certain sensibility that is not as much present on the East coast. Like, like I thought it might be, that's not, that's not necessarily a good or bad thing. It's just like, you know, I just, I'm making an observation that I think, because um, I go back to Indiana and go back to Kansas City, you know, the places that I'm from uh, periodically. And um, yeah, I mean, swing is still going strong there, swinging, you know, and um, and I don't think jazz has to swing, but I, it's just, it's something that was very much at the basis of the music originally. And it's something that I love and value. So it's great to have people that are swinging so you can get back in touch with that and, and renew yourself, you know. I think it's level. great for the audience. I think it's great for the audience as well. And and I think that just yeah. just from a uh, cultural and, and, and even business standpoint, um, yeah, you know, jazz has to revisit that connection to the people. People need to understand mm -hmm. it. And so many times, you know, when I talk to people about the record label, people ask what I do, you know, um, and after mm -hmm. the and after the oh wow, you know, uh, <laughs> comes the I don't really understand a lot of jazz you know and uh yeah. you know I, I i think it's very important to bring and and highlight all these elements and bring it back to the dance floor if you will so to speak so that because everybody can understand that you know uh yeah yeah i think like i yeah i think um i had an opportunity uh to work with like swing bands when i was living in indiana and um I was working at a jazz club for there's a, there's a jazz club in Indianapolis called the Chatterbox. Well, there's really two jazz clubs. It's uh, the Jazz Kitchen and the Chatterbox. And the Jazz Kitchen is more like a club with and they they have like Latin dance bands and stuff like that and DJs. But there's the Chatterbox, which is more of a just a, a down home bar. And they have jazz there nightly. And so I got to play, um, you know, right, right in front of people. And I was also like when I was on a ship, I did, uh, I was a ship musician briefly. We did swing, we did swing oriented stuff. And yeah, I think it's good to have those roots. And like you said, um, people moving to, to it, people dancing to it, people, I, I'm not saying you have to, but I think it gives you a different sensibility. And I'm, I'm glad I had those experiences. And Kansas City yeah. certainly still exemplifies that in a lot of ways. 
Beautiful, beautiful. So what, um, what else do you do? I mean, every musician these days, especially jazz musicians, has to have a variety of, yeah. of, uh, of uh, gigs. And of course, that's going to happen yeah. to the rest of the world uh, now that we're in yeah. economy years. But what, uh, tell us what, what, your, what your week is like. What, what else are you doing? Because I want people to have the opportunity to know where you are. Yeah. Um, well, I do a lot with private music education for one thing, like to pay my bills. I, I do a lot of teaching, especially with middle school age kids. That's just something I've fallen into. I teach saxophone, flute and clarinet and a little bit of piano as well. And, um, you know, uh, there's a great Arnold Schoenberg uh, quote or formulation about the, the musician who's like a um, performer, composer and educator. And I I think that I am able to enjoy those three worlds. And he talks about the, the virtuous circle that that has where they all feed each other. And that's something that I'm able to enjoy a lot with what I do. I mean, right now it's summertime and we're speaking and, I, and we're not back in school yet, but um, I do a lot of that. Um, I used to have a, uh, besides music lessons, I had a bar gig for a long time for like five years where I played twice a week and I was doing like a, like a, general business thing where we played rock and country and a handful of standards and German tunes. And, um, it was at a German bar and, you know, that we improvised there, but, um, I also do things, um, a lot of times at Rockwood Music Hall in the Lower East Side of New York City. Um, I'll do rock and groove and, and improvise music with my friend Adam Minkoff. Sometimes we have a, a soul jazz band where we play like deep cuts, I'll say, from Blue Note and Prestige from the late 60s, early 70s. It's almost like acid jazz. Um, I'll do uh, sometimes free improvised music with my friend Cheryl Pyle. She's a wonderful flutist who leads a band called Beyond Group um, with a number of wonderful musicians on the New York uh, jazz scene. Um, there's, uh, I'm thinking, uh, uh, my friend Dorian Wallace, who's a pianist and composer in, in the classical world. And we've done stuff like um, uh, an avant-garde big band that he has, a small group where we play totally free um, stuff for dancers. So for me, it's, as you said, it's, it's that, um, it's that mix of, of freelance stuff that, that keeps the music compelling and interesting. And whenever I, you know, whenever I get the chance to do stuff like, like a, like a wedding gig or, or, or a bar gig or whatever, whatever, what have you, I'll take it. Um, I derive, I happen to derive a lot of my income from teaching and that's just kind of the way that it, um, unfolded for me. Uh, when I first moved to New York, um, I had been teaching in Indiana privately and then I got into it here and it just kind of snowballed and it's something that I really love to do. Um, but I think that I bring that stuff to, I bring aspects from teaching to my own performances as, a um, in two ways, both as a band leader and trying to like work with people and, and bring a certain vision alive, like in tenor triage, if you're trying to get that music and play it and, and, and say like, this is what we're trying to do. And then secondly, in the way that I present or talk to the audience, um, sometimes when you're talking to kids, there's an element of performance there too. You know, I, I don't want to like, like uh, go too far with that. I mean, you're still a teacher, but like, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to engage them and get them interested and, and look at what, what works for them. And so I think when I get in front of an audience that also translates, um, there's, you know, mm. talking to people. So 
I enjoy a healthy mix of stuff and I hope that it just keeps going in that direction. I'm, I'd always like to be playing more. I think most musicians probably yeah. do the same thing. And um, we're hoping that, you know, um, like my band Individuation plays and, and Tenor Triage plays. And I've got a band in Kansas City that plays and I play with my friend Cheryl and Dorian and Adam. So it's just a mix of stuff and trying to make it all work together. That's, that's my life so far in New York City. That's it. You heard it. Uh, people can go to uh, michaeletonmusic.com to get information right. and Tenor Triage. Uh, once again, uh, that Tenor Triage is Michael Eaton, Sean Sondreger, James Brandon Lewis with Brad Jones and G. Calvin Weston backing them up. Uh, due out on September 13th, 2019. People can pre-order now. Information is at ropeadope.com. Michael Eaton, thanks so much for doing what you do uh, and for bringing us Thank this you, Lewis. music. And uh, I'm excited for people to, uh, to hear this record. Me too. I'm really excited and thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure and honor. Thank you all for tuning in to the station tapes. If you like what we do, please subscribe on Mixcloud at 21 Soul. You can also find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google, and wherever else pods are cast. Our video interview series is available on YouTube at Ropadope99, and you can find out more about the artists we speak with at Ropadope.com. Thanks to the 21 Soul team, Nick Perry and Steven Jashevsky on production, Larry Yetman on video, and the great Fabian Brown on the creativity and positive energy tip. Our theme song is from the Red Hook Soul by saxophonist Michael Blake. You can find out more about Michael Blake at michaelblake.bandcamp.com or on your favorite streaming service. Finally, thanks to all of you who keep the flame burning for independent quality music. To the musicians who pour their creativity into the world and to those of you who are taking the time to listen, we hope you enjoy the show.